0: Hello, and welcome to the Low-Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks, and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class, Archaeology in the Prehistoric World, from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. All right, uh, so um, as we left left off with the history of the uh, the Aztecs, um, they were founding a city in the middle of a swamp because, you know, swamps are good places to build cities. No, it was because no one would give them any other good land. Um, so they had to build in the middle of a swamp and make do. So uh, they built their capital, Tenochtitlan, um, on... So if this is the lake that used to be at the center. Now Mexico City, basically, encompasses this entire lake. It's a couple of different lakes, kind of like they have different oceans, even though they're all connected, right? So these are all really one lake, and I don't believe any of them have any water left in them. Maybe there's one or two where there's like a little pond somewhere, but this lake is gone. It is history. Um, And uh, like I said, Salt Lake, and here's the island on which they built Tenochtitlan. And to give you an idea of how amazing the city became, um... I'm going to read you three paragraphs from a book written by uh, Bernal Diaz. He was a conquistador that came in with Cortes in 1520 or 21. I don't know, 1520, um, looking to take over the capital. And this is what these Europeans, now remember, Europeans, you know, they have very high opinion of themselves. They have big cities. They have cathedrals. They think they're kind of hot stuff. (coughs) So, uh, and when we saw all those cities and villages built in the water and the other great towns on dry land, and that straight and level causeway leading to Mexico, that Tenochtitlan was called Mexico, uh, we were astounded. These great towns and temples and buildings rising from the water, all made of stone, seemed like an enchanted vision from a tale of Amadis. Indeed, some of our soldiers asked whether or not it was all a dream. It is not surprising, therefore, that I should write this in vain. It was also wonderful. I do not know how to describe this first glimpse of things never heard of, seen, or dreamed of before." And when we entered the city of Itzalpa, uh, the site of the palaces in which they lodged us, they were very spacious and well-built, magnificent stones, cedar wood, and the wood of other sweet-smelling trees with great rooms and courts, which were a wonderful sight, and all covered with awnings of woven cotton. When we had taken a good look at all this, we went to the orchard and garden, which was a marvelous place both to see and walk in. I was never tired of noticing the diversity of trees and the very scents given off by each, and the paths choked with roses and flowers and the many local fruit trees and rose bushes and the pond of fresh water. Then there were birds of many breeds and varieties that came to the pond. I say again that I stood looking at it and thought that no land like it would ever be discovered in the whole world. But today all that I am... But (laughs) this is the best part... But today, all that I then saw is overthrown and destroyed. Nothing is left standing. Guess who did that? Uh, (laughs) The Spanish. So they come into the city, and they're saying, wow, this is an amazing city, and then burn it to the ground, basically. Uh, Well, we'll get to the Spanish conquest uh, tomorrow, or Friday. Uh, But that's just a little foretaste. So Tenochtitlan blew the Spanish minds because it was an amazing city, uh, even Judged by, uh, so this is a European drawn map. Um, You can, as you can see, it's kind of a distorted view, but there's um, amazing uh, causeways uh, built into this city, which they built up, and they built up land from the swamps. And I'll talk about how they did that uh, here in a minute. Um, Here's a more modern uh, archaeological drawn map, and you can see both causeways in yellow and these green things, which are actually. aqueducts. And we're going to do a quick video. So they still exist today. Um, You can see this is what the causeways were. They were piled up um, stones with roads on top of them. But let's see. We'll do a little bit of a video. Oops. This is an ad not necessarily endorsed by
1: ...design and build something that only a few world empires would master, the aqueduct. The aqueduct actually had two channels, each about five feet high and three feet wide. One would be cleaned and maintained, while the other was being used so the water flow was never interrupted. It's clever. The Twin Tube Aqueduct ran for three miles from the mainland to the center of the island city. In town, water streamed into public fountains and reservoirs, and was distributed to the public in large clay jars or by canoe. In comparison to the Europeans, the Aztec were a uh, very clean people. Uh, we know that the Aztec emperor bathed twice a day, so in terms of hygiene, the Aztec people uh, was much more advanced than the Europeans. While the Aztec nobles were bathing in luxury, at this time in Europe, plague caused by unsanitary conditions was killing millions. King Netwell Coyote's own bath was one of the most unique in the Americas. It was fed by a sophisticated aqueduct system that also brought running water to his palace grounds. Uh, Behind me is the hill of Texcocinco. And on this hill, Nezua built a fantastic pleasure palace. And around this palace, a virtual botanical garden filled with all of the exotic flowers of Mesoamerica. Omenaka. brought water from the Sierra Nevada mountains all the way down to here, into this hill, to his palace, just to water his plants. To install much. an aqueduct there, Netzwal Koyoto had to fill a huge gorge between Texcocinco and the next hill. As the water arrived at the first hill, it gathered in small pools, built to control the speed of the flow, before it reached the aqueduct. After crossing the aqueduct, the water ran in a circuit around Texcocinco Hill, spilling off over the sides in rock-cut waterfalls to water the gardens. It ended up in a nearly perfectly round rock-cut pool called the King's Bath. And from here, he could look upon his domain at Texcoco, and he could look down at the botanical gardens that he was watering with his fantastic
0: aqueducts. Is indeed a bad fit for a king. <laughs> <laughs>
1: By the mid-15th century, with their empire
0: on the rise. Yeah. So, uh, they were no slouches when it came to uh, engineering and. Uh, it's pretty fantastic, especially if you think um, when we look at the previous way that I laid out technology right uh, stone to bronze to iron age uh, these people these people uh, were stone technically stone Age people. so Stone Age is a little mm, unfair uh, to say because obviously other than the type of material they were using for tools, they were extremely advanced uh, and extremely. Uh, competent engineers um it, it it always amazes me how different world history would have turned out if the spanish had come with a modicum of i don't know humility or equanimity towards these people and instead of coming to conquer which was what their goal was absolutely and there was some debate whether or not people in the new world were actually people it took the pope uh to issue a decree saying, yes, these are actually people. Stop enslaving them uh, for the Spanish to say, OK, I guess. And then they came up with other laws that basically made them slaves instead. Uh, or yeah, So they were treating them like, I mean, they were pretty brutal. We'll get into that later. But uh, if they had come and actually realized what a, um, uh frustrating, all this lost. Um They also built up a lot of land. I've talked about Chinampas, I think, before, because they're one of my favorite things. Uh, so basically, they would, in their swamp, they would uh, dig canals and plant trees and then they dig the canals into uh, between the trees and build up land that they could grow plants on and the plants were uh, could develop deep enough roots that they would always reach the water table um, and they because of the water the water is slower to change temperature. They wouldn't get frost as much or as quickly. They could grow multiple um, crops each year and uh, that, Uh, the pulling the soil or the the canal mud and things out. It was very organic rich, so it was really rich soil. And then uh, plants would grow in the canals and they would pull the plants out, the aquatic plants, and put them on the field to add fertilizer and fish would live in the canals. Not to mention the fact that you could use them for transportation. So uh, some people called, or some um, early people that saw Tenochtitlan called it the Venice of the New World because everyone got around on canoes. They didn't really need, there, there were roads and pathways and, and bridges, but you could just as easily get around on a canoe, and if you have a boat full of something to bring to the market, it's much easier on a canoe rather than by hand. So um, there are a few of these, uh, Sochimilco and a couple other places, they still have these things extant, uh, which is amazing. And now they mostly use them to grow uh, flowers for export, not for uh, crops to live on. But there's still a functioning system, although it is shrinking and, and disappearing. Okay, so by the late Aztec period, um, they, had not, they had already taken over, and this is I really pell-mell fast through here because we have to get through Aztecs and the um, They, After forming an alliance with a couple other weaker powers around them, they started expanding their power out. And um, you can see through the march of time, the different... Uh, emperors, or kings, or rulers of the Aztec um, expanded ever farther out to create a larger and a larger um, empire, Moctezuma II, was the uh, ruler when the Spanish came down from Cuba, hit Yucatan, and traveled along, and then came up here and into the center. But we'll talk about the Spanish and their arrival after we, at the very end... Agriculture was varied. Uh, they had their chinampas, which I already showed you. Uh, they also had many fields uh, and terraced, um, terraced uh, fields out on the hills, on the hilly slopes because it was kind of a hilly area because of the mountains and uh, volcanoes. But they had rich soil because of those volcanoes. Volcanic soil is really uh, usually a pretty rich one. Um, they had markets where they distributed their food. Um, much of their, st- their staple was corn. They also ate beans and squash, like the Maya. It's kind of like a pan Mesoamerican american sort of uh, triad. And um, women would spend a significant amount of time grinding corn um, each day into uh, flour to make things like tortillas. Um, the Maya really didn't eat tortillas. Tortillas were a central Mexican thing. Burritos, would or the progenitor of burritos, would have been an Aztec food. Um, I'll um, say, burrito, doo, doo, doo. Uh, tamales, uh, tamales would have been eaten all over Mesoamerica, uh, pozole, and um, pozole is like corn, it's like corn oatmeal. But instead of oats, it's corn. But I don't want to say cornmeal because that's something else in English. Um, and you, know, like, uh, you would be able to go to the market and buy all these different things. There were people that could have lived without growing themselves food, which is a big uh, change and step up, uh, step up in, in complexity. Mm. They did have a few um, domesticated animals, dogs, which were both kept for companionship and also for meat. Um, turkeys, ducks, and they had bees that didn't have stingers, and they didn't produce as much honey, but they didn't have stingers. I have to go back in my beehive this afternoon, and I think they are going to be mad at me. Uh, So I wish I had stingless bees. Uh, They also ate deer, fish, and rabbits that they caught um, or hunted. Uh, They did also eat uh, cacao or um, chocolate. Hot chocolate was uh, something for the elites only, We'll talk about the social divisions here in a minute, but they would eat uh, or they would drink hot chocolate uh, that was frothed. Um, And uh, if you were an if you were an elder, if you had reached the age of fifty-two years old, you could drink alcohol. Nobody else was allowed to drink alcohol, Uh, so it's kind of like a retirement present. Hey, you get to get drunk now. Um, And they would make something and not quite tequila, but it was made from the same plant, so that. agave-looking. It looks like a giant aloe plant. Um, They would make a pulque uh, from that, and only certain people were allowed to drink it. And the penalty for drinking alcohol, if you weren't old enough, was severe. Um, Trade mostly functioned through markets. And if you were a big enough city, you would have daily markets, like Tenochtitlan. Uh, If you were a moderately sized town, you might have weekly markets. Or if you were in a little village, you would have a market whenever a trader came to your town, and it might not have been as regular. People traded for things like uh, obsidian, pottery. And these are commoners. Obsidian, pottery, salt, slaves, and textiles. Um, So they would have marketplaces with delineated stalls, much like a farmer's market that you go to here. There's different locations with numbers where people would have to be. That's your location. They would have judges. if you uh, there was some sort of trade dispute, you could go to an official that was there. Um, and they didn't have a specific... They didn't have a fiat currency, but they did use cacao beans as kind of a standard rate of exchange. Like, if a turkey is worth 15 cacao beads and that blanket that you're selling is worth 60 cacao beads, I will give you four turkeys. So it was like... It was how they evened out trades uh, to be equitable. They actually had a value system based on the cacao beans, but you wouldn't actually need the cacao beans. You could just use the value. This uh, sheet from a the nice thing, unlike the Maya, unlike, to some extent, the Egyptians, Mesopotamians, and others, the Spanish were conquered by a people who were... um, very interested in writing down everything that they saw. They didn't write down everything, but they wrote down a lot. So this, for example, is collaboration between some uh, scribes, uh, some local Aztec scribes, and Franciscan monks who came with the Spanish after the conquest. And they said, write down everything about your society. Now their reason was, we want to learn everything about your society so we can convert you to Catholicism. That was their underlying goal. But... They did write down a ton of information. So, this sheet was drawn by an Aztec scribe, and then all the Roman writing or the Latin, Latin or Spanish writing is uh, from the monks who would explain what they're looking at. So, like, um, these are different locations, right? Here's that um, Tepec or mountain, and then so that's like Bunny Mountain or. Uh, I forget what that one is, but there's different um, locations, right? And this is what their tribute would be to the royal household or to the to the state, basically. And these are bundles of blankets, and these uh, like pine tree looking things coming out of them are numbers to tell like a thousand or a hundred or something like that. And then they would have to give like uh, suits of armor, uh, strings of jade beads, bundles of feathers. Um, different mats filled with, or baskets filled with other things. These little flags, I think, mean five. I don't remember exactly, right? So, um, but it was a tribute list. And so we have a really pretty good, compared to other ancient societies, a pretty good idea of what sorts of things were available. And note that these are all elite things. These are all for... These are all for pretty fancy people, right? Like elite warriors, jade beads are going to be for uh, nobles to wear. But this is what would have been due from different provinces as their tribute to, to the capital. Um, so, yeah, on the one hand, the Spanish completely destroyed this way of life, but they did record a lot of it, which, which is useful. So you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, Much of the trade was done on the backs of human beings because there were no beasts of burden like the Maya, no wheeled vehicles. Um, So porters would have moved um, things around. There was actually a guild or a class of people called Pochteca, p-o-c-h-t-e-c-a. Pochteca. These were the merchants, and they were They would have like merchant houses and warehouses and networks that they could then um, move their things along, and they were professional salespeople. Okay. Society, just like every other society we've looked at, was uh, strictly, at least in this size of a society, was strictly uh, segregated and stratified. And at the top, yet again, we have a ruling noble class with a particular ruler. Um, the ruler for the um, Aztecs was called a tlatoani. The TL is kind of hard to say. It's like, tla, tla. It's Like make the T, t noise and then tla, 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 let the air escape on the sides of your tongue, Tlatoani. Tla, tla. um, we don't really have it in English. Uh, that would be the ruler. He, as far as I know, every Aztec ruler was a man. I can't think of any female rulers, which is not the case for other societies. But again, remember, if we go back, look at when they really started expanding their empire. 1427. And when did the Spanish come and destroy them? Well, a little after 1519. Like, by 1521, they were done. So less than 100 years, and they made that much progress. Um, Who knows what would have happened if they had been allowed to continue uh, to expand and dominate the the area um, for another four or five hundred years, as was typical for most complex societies? We're seeing trajectories of five hundred years pretty pretty regularly. So they were really cut off before they could maybe really get going. Imagine what would have happened in another. 400 years. Yeah. What
1: are they wearing
0: around their neck? So uh, those are slaves. Oh. So they're wearing slave collars. Whether or not they would have actually worn them every day, I don't know. But they were depicted that way. Um, They very likely did wear those collars. And the women wear um, wear their hair. They have long hair. They would braid it into two long braids, wrap it around their heads, and then leave the ends kind of sticking out like little horns. So you can always tell women, because they're wearing a tunic, They have horns, no actual horn, hair horns, and the men always wear um, more of a toga off of one shoulder and don't have horns. Um, So, yeah, uh, so the ruler, um, hmm. so it says his name, and then fourth, uh, king, right? So this is from a manuscript. Anyway, uh, he would have been selected from a pool of uh, potential, like a pope, you know how they have like a pool of potential candidates for a pope and then they all vote, all the cardinals vote on who is to become the next pope. Um, similar to that, uh, they would have a pool of sons, cousins, and others of the right age um, and ability when the previous Tlatelani died, and they would uh, vote, uh, or essentially the nobles would get together and decide on who was going to be. Often it was the previous Tlatelani's son, but not always. If the guy was a complete poop, they did not uh, let him take over, because that would be silly. Um, below the, uh, there were um, sumptuary rules, so uh, only the elites could eat certain types of food and wear certain types of clothing, like cotton. Uh, they were thought to be better. Um, and I don't just mean, like, more wealthy. I mean, like, they were thought to be better human beings than commoners, which I know is jarring to our or supposedly egalitarian um, ideas. Um, The nice thing, though, is that because they were thought to be morally better, uh, or just a step above the common people, if they infracted one of the rules, they had a much more severe punishment, sometimes death, for going against the rules. Like, if they were caught drinking before they were 52 years old, they might be killed, whereas a commoner might have just been made a slave. Uh, the, the reasoning behind this, and it makes perfect sense, is, hey, if you're better than all those commoners and you make this mistake, that is worse. Because those commoners, they're too stupid and just you know, have poor uh, self-control. And we expect that from commoners, but not you. You're special, right? Uh, so I kind of wish we had that law in our country. The more powerful you were, the stricter your uh, the more severe your punishment for the same infractions. That would be awesome. Um, but we don't. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. I don't know if that would be a good idea or not. It'd be a fun social experiment. Um, commoners. Um, they could uh, they owed corvée labor. It was called Tequitl. You don't need to know that. Um, but they owed corvée labors to the tlatoani. Uh, so uh, you know, a couple of weeks to a couple of months a year, or uh, they could also give things like the um, tribute list back here. Especially these mantles. These uh, these are bundles of blankets and sheets, uh, pieces of cloth basically, and these were usually woven by women. Um, see, like these are individual uh, tunics for men to wear and tunics for women to wear. Um, So the women would actually weave those, and each family was responsible for giving in a certain footage of cloth every year or something like that. So it wasn't just the men. Um, The Pochteca uh, were commoners, but they were becoming increasingly um, wealthy. Perhaps given another 100 years, they would have overtaken the nobles and become even more wealthy than the nobles, as was happening in Europe at the time. Um, Interestingly... uh, they got really annoyed. They started to get really frustrated because they were wealthier than the nobles often, uh, but they couldn't wear cotton because it was against the rules because they were commoners. And there was like one day a year where they could wear all their finery and they put on all their gaudy crap and walked around the streets. Um, everyone was like, wow, look how rich they are. Hmm. Um, but the Pochete- Pocheteca were certainly, even though they were commoners, they were really elevating um, in terms of social status. Um, and then we have slaves, Tlacotli. Uh, um, slaves were made to be in such a position um, as punishment for a crime. Uh, you could be sentenced to be a slave. Um, you could settle a debt that way. If I owed a certain amount of money to somebody, I could instead enslave myself to them uh, if it was the right amount of money. Um, they could be uh, war captives. That happens sometimes. Um, you could be married, if, even if you were a slave, you could be married to a free person. And if you had children, they were free. Although some people, sometimes people sold their children into slavery. Um, and sometimes for actually a really good reason. Um, during the 8, 15, sorry, 1450s, there was a really bad uh, famine um, for like three or four years. And people were having trouble feeding themselves. And so they would sell first their children into slavery for money. But that's not the only reason they did it it was they would sell it to people who had food and uh, if you owned slaves you had to feed them so hey we can't feed our kids better that they are slaves and eating rather than dying with us so i mean that i mean what kind of that would be like if i was going to write a movie about the aztecs like that would be like such a moving like story like oh we're going to sell our kids as slaves but it's a good thing well no it's not a good you know like oh that would be so much fun to play with um, and then sometimes pe- people would sell themselves into slavery for the same reason. Um, so yeah, it was a quite, the, quite a different uh, juxtaposition. Um, there was social mobility, but you could only get, uh, if you were born a commoner, you could never become an elite uh, noble. Um, so you could move up within the commoner, you could start out the son of a slave and become a pochteca and a very wealthy commoner, but you could never become an elite and similarly, as an elite, you couldn't... It would be very hard to drop down because you're a different kind of person, even if you you were just better. Like You just can't, you know... It's, mm. Okay. And... Okay, Inca. Oh, um, one last thing I wanted to mention about... One last important note. I'm sorry to go back, and I hate doing that because I know it screws with your notes, and I apologize. We have to remember that their empire was not like the Roman Empire, where the Romans built walls, and I think I mentioned this last time, built walls around the edge of their empire, and then within their empire, they subdued and controlled everything. That's not how the Aztecs did it. The Aztecs did. They would come in to, let's say they're taking over over this area, they come in, they go to the capital city with an army behind them. Army, it's like elite warriors. It's not a big, giant army. That would be the Inca.
1: These
0: are the Aztecs. Aztecs. So they come in, with their army on their back, they knock on the door, and they say, hello. We're the Aztecs, perhaps you've heard of us. Um, We uh, would like to control your territory. Uh, And right now you have a choice. You can either join us willingly, and we'll give you low tax rates and we'll let you, ruler of this place, stay in charge, and we won't kill your family, and we won't do anything bad to you. And not only that, then you have access to all of our markets and our protection. If your neighbors start being jerks, you call us. We'll come and kick their butts. Uh, Sound like a good deal? For a lot of people, that sounded like a really good deal because the Aztecs were really brutal. uh, They had a really good military, and better join them then uh, get your butt kicked, because if you didn't join, they would start sending you gifts that were, like, not really gifts. They'd send you, like, a shield or, like, spears or stuff like, hey, you're going to need these weapons because we're going to come kill all of you. And then they would do that, too. If you refused long enough, they would come in, and they would kill the elite family and put one of their own nobles on the throne, and they would impose heavy tribute, and they would be... Brutal, you know, kind of brutal rulers to that area because then everyone around heard about it. And then when the Aztecs came to the next town and said, hey, we want to control your territory, uh, even if the ruler didn't want to, all the people would hear what happened next. You know, the next county over. Oh, no, they owe them so much every year and it's such a burden. Just join them. It's much better. Basically the mafia. Uh, but, but then uh, when people did join, the Aztecs didn't have to do anything. They just said, hey, where's our stuff? Right? They didn't have to go in. Well, that's not a good noise. Okay, good. I thought that was about to explode on Dirk's head. Um, so uh, they would go in, and uh, so it was a pretty effective system. They could just plug into the existing um, network and get a lot of tribute out of it. So it was a very effective. Uh, it's called hegemonic power. hegemonic power rather than territorial power like the Romans had or others who had fortifications around their borders. They were just kind of plugged in to the existing system and taking power out or taking stuff out of it, which is pretty, pretty clever. Okay. All right. And now let's move on to the Inca. All right. So uh, we're going to go through region, chronology and history, agriculture, trade, and society. And then at the end, we'll talk about the Spanish uh, marching through uh, Mesoamerica and South America in one fell swoop together, because that's one large historical event. Okay, so the Inca were on the west coast of South America. So Peru, uh, Ecuador, Bolivia, Chile. Um, Their capital... Somewhere in here, Cusco. It's right here. Um, But it was largely, it was a really long, thin empire. It it was only 400 to 700 miles wide, but it was 3,000 miles long. It's a pretty good sized empire. Um, Often we talk about regions as having different ecological zones. Like when we talked about the Maya, there was like the southern coast and then there were the mountains and the southern lowlands and the northern lowlands and things like that. With the um, Inca, we should really talk about vertical elevation rather than like different distinct ecological zones spread out on a map. They were spread out horizontally because different plants and animals thrived and grew in different regions. And I'll show you... uh, I'll just jump to the diagram. It's way, I should have put it here. Anyway, so uh, near the sea level, uh, we have the Chala zone where they have river valleys and fish. But um, on one side, it's very hot, um, like on the the, uh, east side of the mountain where it's uh, going into the Amazon. But on the other side, it's actually quite dry. and then going up the Mount, or up the uh, the Andes, uh, we have like the foothills where they grew fruits and coca. Now, not cocoa. So there's or cacao. Cacao is chocolate. This is coca, as in Coca Cola or coca, ca- cocaine. C- uh, cocaine. C- cocaine, man. Okay. So uh, coca is the leaf that has the stimulant. Uh, that is distilled into cocaine, and people would chew the leaf and get a mild buzz from it. Um, so different things, coca versus cacao. Okay. Um, so this was grown in one of the lower regions. Um, a little farther up, they have, um, I guess you'd call them the highlands. That's where the, a lot of the farmlands were. A little higher above that, so it's starting to be a little more mm, cold. Uh, you get where they grew potatoes. Above that uh, is grazing where they grew camelids. Camelids are basically anything related to a camel. And this includes uh, alpacas, llamas, or llamas, uh, or, and vicuña. Um, fun news story. Uh, they did a DNA analysis and found... Uh, the progenitor of the camel was actually an Arctic animal in North American's northernmost regions, and the reason it has the hump is not for storing water, but for storing fat, because that's what the hump is, right? It's not a water tank, it's fat, because it was an Arctic animal. It has the big, <clears throat> the camels have the big paws, not because of the sand, but because of the snow, and a lot of the adaptations that they have that make them good in the desert sand were actually originally um, adapted for the snow. Um, and what happened is if, here's a really bad drawing of North America and South America and the Old World, the camel started out, or the, the ancestor of the camel started here, the land bridge was open, some came over here and became the camels that we call camels, and some moved down here and became things like llamas. So, they're all related. Fun, fun time. Anyway, um, people would eat them, uh, but also use them as pack animals, and I'll talk about them a little later. And then above that, above the snow line, they have shrines. Um, actually, uh, people in this area of the world live at the highest elevations of any other people in the world. Um, I have a friend who works in the Himalayas and goes up to these like, really high-up villages and is a culture anthropologist, and I asked, well, how high do people live there? I forget the exact... It was like 4,000 4, meters or something... And there are people here living at 5,000 meters, and I told him that. He's like, there's no way anyone's living at 5,000 meters. You can't live there. But apparently they um, really, uh, and they have physiological changes to their bodies to live there. Um, Oh, that's why I'm so far ahead. What the heck? Um, The climate is uh, driven a lot by elevation. So the mountains are kind of create a rain shadow. So it's obviously very lush and wet on the east side, where the Amazon is. And on this side, it's actually very dry and desert-like. There there are some areas of precipitation, but the major factor that drives precipitation is elevation. Um, As air rises, it's less dense and cooler, and it can hold less moisture, so it does drop out the moisture. And there are different bands of precipitation and dry, precipitation, dry, that come off the Pacific Ocean And this all, of course, um, gets stood on its head during... Oh, so here are the different... I did have something for this. Uh, Some of the vertical zones, right? So camelids, here's the tip-tops where they have shrines. um, Here's the farmland, and here's the coast. The coast isn't like a rich jungle coast. It is like a desert coast. Okay. And uh, the climate is largely turned on its head every, oh, you know, 2 to 11 years by uh, what we just call El Nino. Its formal name is the El Nino Southern Oscillation, uh, ENSO, is the uh, scientific term for ENSO. Um, And basically what happens in an El Nino year, which again happens every 2 to 11 years with not great predictability, so it basically reverses all the usual climate which sucks. Um, so usually, there is an ocean upwelling of cold water uh, along the coast. And the cold water brings with it, so if here's the ocean, and there's all kinds of biological activity on the top 100 meters. When things die, they sink down. And they hit like this flow of water that moves across the bottom of the ocean. And it pulls all these nutrients. They're degrading. They're breaking down into digestible bits. And then they hit South America, and they flow up to the surface. And all the plankton eat the little bits. And then all the fish eat the plankton. And the bigger fish eat the smaller fish, right? And so this is a really rich fishing area. Every two to 11 years, El Nino strikes, and that flow breaks down. And this water becomes hot. And there isn't much upflow of those nutrients, which completely wreaks havoc with their really intense fishing industry. Then and now, um, and it also changes the uh, precipitation, because now you have warm, moist air um, near what's usually a desert, so all that water comes on land and rains and creates torrents, and I'll have pictures of that when we get to the disasters. It is um, a major problem, and if you are building a large civilization, you need to plan for Every two to eleven years, there being basically a year of n- not much getting grown um, and having you know potentially destroyed cities and infrastructure, so kind of a problem. Chronology, thankfully, like uh, it's actually very similar to Egypt in that it is laid out with periods of stasis, which are the horizons interspersed with periods of upheaval and uh, breakdown of large-scale groups. Um, so it's horizons are steady, intermediates are turmoil. It's much easier when they're kind of logically set out rather than just kind of super random. Um, so uh, we're not really going to talk. I'm basically going to just give you a... cope. A couple, were, or a couple things about each one of these, because they're so far b- before the Inca. The Inca are really just that last 100 years, if that, 50, 60, 70 years. They did a lot in those years. <clears throat> but they stood on the, the shoulders of others, and these uh, dates will come up again, so if you don't get them all right now. The early horizon, and this is a computer-generated um, picture of what used to be a U-shaped, large, ceremonial building. Um, <clears throat> was uh, dominated by. Oh, I have blank. Why, I have blank pages? Oh, that's good. Uh, the Chavin culture. Chavin culture. One of the earliest and uh <clears throat> one of the earliest large-scale, I guess you'd call it, state-level societies uh, in the new in South America. Um, built large temple structures. Uh, really, a lot of exciting work going on with them right now. Like I said, I'm not really going to talk much about these. Um, The early intermediate, the Chavin culture breaks down. And we have a variety of different regional powers kind of spring up, um, like the Moche. And uh, at Tiwanaku, perhaps you've heard of Lake Tiwanaku. There was a culture related to that lake. Uh, And then Nazca. Nazca uh, you may have heard of because of the lines that they drew. Nazca lines are lines of stones on the Nazca plane that you can only see from above. They, theoretically, unless there were aliens giving them rides on the spaceships, uh, never got to see these things from this high up, so uh, we don't really know why they were making them, or how they could plan that out to make it be obviously a, a monkey, or uh, there are a, couple, a whole bunch of them, but if you want to look them up, look up Nazca lines. They're pretty... They may have been... Uh, Ritual, or some sort of—I uh, mean, I mean—it's just as arbitrary as making a temple, really. Yes. Do you
1: know what they like could have used to like make the markings, or how? Oh yeah. Because like they're obviously like still there. Like, yeah. In, the, in the deserts.
0: So. Well, they don't get much rain. Yeah, so there's not a lot of surface erosion. <clears throat> but basically, what happens is there's um, a surface, and there's a ton of like white rocks on it. Right. And then the sand, uh, not sand, it's like gravelly underneath, but there's like distinct white rocks. And so what people would do is they would just pick up the white rocks and put them in line. Yeah,
1: so that's I've how they made it. Oh, have you?
0: Seen it. <clears throat> yeah, my family's from Peru. Oh, cool. Yeah, so I've seen it once. Oh, so yeah. jealous. It's super cool. It is super cool. Oh, so jealous. Yeah, and there's, yeah, there's not much erosion, so they're not really going anywhere, which is nice. Um, middle horizon. This is when the uh, the previous, the Moche, uh, declined, which had been kind of big during the intermediate period. Um, But the uh, the Wari became the dominant culture, and they um, extend extended their power across a lot of what would later become the Inca Empire, but not all of it. They made large fortifications. They had fairly militaristic architecture. Um, They made a lot of really uh, really cool pots. Uh, there is a different pottery aesthetic to South America, or to the Western South America, where they made very human-like uh, like portrait pots and other... Um, uh, there's sex pots, if you want to have fun with Google later. Uh, you can look up uh, Andean sex pots. They are uh, extremely explicit... Um they're basically sculptures that happen to also be a jar. Some of them are sculptures of people doing sexual things. Some of them, if you uh, were to use them, you would be performing the sexual act on the pot like they are very uh, body positive um, people. Uh, but there are also a lot of warriors or portraits of probably rulers and very lifelike um, Basically, sculptures that are made into pots. It's a pretty fun, it's a pretty fun tradition. Um, in the late intermediate, uh, we have rainfall, um, kerfluffles, and uh, wari declined, and there were a number of regional powers that rose up, and things uh, kind of got disintegrated. The wari, nah, I wouldn't call it a wari empire, but the the, the large expanse that the, had been under the wari kind of disintegrated into regional powers until the Inca. The Inca were just one of these regional powers. They were an ethnic group that, kind of like the Aztecs, was kind of wandering around looking for a place um, to call home. Legend has it that their gods were leading them, and uh, there was a golden rod that indicated Cusco was the valley in which to make their homeland and their capital, and their city, and so they found their place, and they started building, and they uh, started expanding and taking over the region around them. Mm -hmm. They, So the term Inca, there's a couple of different... So Inca means fringe, and uh, sometimes... Does Alaska have a fringe on? There was like... Uh, Later on, the Inca would wear like a fringe kind of. Like sometimes you see horses with like fringe over their eyes. The idea was that the Inca, his gaze was so powerful that if he looked at you without the fringe on, you would like, I don't know, lasers or whatever die. I don't know. Uh, But it was a very powerful gaze. And so he wore this fringe to protect you because he was a super nice guy. Um, And uh, the Inca, the ruler of the Inca, was the Sapa Inca. And that's the sole ruler, like he's the, the head Inca. Uh, Inca is a more general term also for um, people in the elite noble family. Um, and uh, interesting, I'll talk about that when I get to society. So um, they expanded because one of the reasons that encouraged them to expand was the way their, they passed on rulership was that if a ruler had two sons, and again, all the Inca rulers were male, Again, they only had a couple hundred years to do there, a hundred years to do this, so they weren't. um, So you can see they started out earlier as one of these regional powers, and then in the 1400s they start expanding, and only by the 1500s do they have this really large empire. Anyway, what they would do is, if you had two sons, the Inca, I'm talking the Sapa Inca, the ruler, um, one son would get all the property of the king, but not the title. So he would get a whole bunch of land and a whole bunch of estates and whatever. And the other son would get the title and the job. And so it, it really encouraged that second son, uh, the one who got the title and, the, and the, the army and things like that, to take over more land. And then he would pass that on to one son, and he would pass on the title. So it would like kind of split it up, but it really encouraged expansion. Not that other people haven't needed that encouragement, but uh, it was kind of like b- baked into the system. And they expanded um, and by the end, yeah, they had taken over much of, of Peru. Um, well, not going to get into agriculture and society till next time, and then we'll talk about the Spanish decline. Um, yeah, look up uh, current events, because easy points. We only have Two more classes. Two more classes to get them done, so. And I still have to, you know, finish up the Spanish conquest, which is a pretty uh, ridiculous, just lose faith in human- humanity sort of uh, series of events. <laughs> so we'll look forward to that. Thanks for listening to this Low-Tech Lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the Low-Tech Podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share-Like License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.